0: Welcome to the New Books in Library Science podcast channel on the New Book Network. I'm your host Michael Lamagna. Today I'm joined by the author of The Shakespeare Authorship Question and Philosophy, Knowledge, Rhetoric, Identity, published in 2023 by Cambridge Scholarly Publishing. While it may seem like this is a work examining the debate of who William Shakespeare was, it actually moves beyond this debate to understand how we construct our understanding of the author. Joining me to discuss his new book is Michael Dudley, the Accessibility, International and Extended Services Librarian at the University of Winnipeg. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much, Michael. It's great to be here. Excellent. So before we jump into our discussion of your new book, The Shakespeare Authorship Question in Philosophy, Knowledge, Rhetoric, and Identity, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your path into academic librarianship.
1: Yes, certainly. Uh, The pathway was kind of circuitous. It was not a straight line. Uh, So I have an undergraduate degree in theater, which is where my love of Shakespeare certainly originated. Uh, Excuse me, but I... uh, ended up working in public libraries in the late 80s. So 1989, I started working as a library assistant in a branch in Edmonton, Alberta. And I worked in public libraries for two years, had a wonderful time, Uh, decided to go to library school. So I did my master's of library and information studies at the University of Alberta from 91 to 93. Uh, Interestingly, like just the year, I graduated the year before the World Wide Web, you know, <laughs> came out. And so I, I, I had to learn all that on the job. And it was like all this stuff that I'd done in school seemed suddenly like, you know, immediately uh, made obsolete in some sense. Um, so then I worked at uh, Edmonton Public Library uh, for a year, then ended up at Calgary Public Library f- uh, from from uh, 94 to 98. Uh, so in a number of different service areas, branch work, downtown, um, downtown uh, library, uh, in the music uh, and fine arts department, you know, again, theater, theater and film. So that was that was a lot of fun. But I realized in the late '90s that I, I was really getting interested in urban issues, uh, sustainable transportation, sustainable cities reading books like Jane Jacobs, The Death and Life of Great American Cities that really uh, captured my imagination. And I I thought I really wanted to commit myself professionally to to addressing uh, these urban issues. So I left my job at Calgary Public Library, went to the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg to study city planning at the graduate level, never expecting to be a librarian again. And, you know, it was fascinating work for a couple of years there. And what was quite fascinating <laughs> and a little frustrating is that so much of the, the discourse in librarianship, it seemed, was all about the image of the librarian and the public doesn't know what we do and uh, the, the, the identity crisis in the library profession. And then I get into city planning and find out there's this whole discourse of the the image of the city planner, and nobody knows what city planners do. And it's like, oh no, not again. (laughs) Uh, So I was working on my thesis and looking for work. And I went to the University of Winnipeg and popped in and chatted with a librarian and said, hey, I'm a, a librarian, but working on my thesis. And she said, great. And two weeks later, I was doing evening and weekend reference work. So I just sort of fell into that job. Worked there for another six months. Uh, Then it was a a term position that ended. And the University of Winnipeg has, or has an Institute of Urban Studies. And at the time in 2001, they had a library that had been closed for two years. So the director phones me up and says, we have a library that needs a librarian. And so I just fell into that job. And for 11 years, I was running this one person library doing urban research, community-based research public policy work. And it was all quite fascinating. Uh, And then in 2012, I I applied for and got my current position, which is um, essentially kind of a community outreach role at the University of Winnipeg. So I'm working with these ancillary programs like the the collegiate, the high school that's attached to the uh, university, Uh, We have some community-based programs, pathways into the university, um, beginning university successfully, teacher education programs for new immigrants, for indigenous students, um, a continuing ed program. So it's kind of like as close as you can get kind of to a public library community outreach role in an academic setting. Uh, And I started off doing and working with the indigenous community as well. Um, I don't do Indigenous Studies anymore, but the Aboriginal Student Services Center. I currently work with the International Student Center. Uh, you know, so it's a lot of fun. I've I've got all these different constituencies I work with, and uh, it's always different every day. Lots of instruction, lots of one-on-one reference work.
0: It, it's it's really great to see how everything came full circle for you professionally. And it, it really yeah. interesting to hear about the issues of professional identity outside the academic library field.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, but I also feel that, and I've
1: been convinced of this for a long time that my degree in city planning actually helped me be a better librarian and certainly an academic librarian um, and being able to um, apply actually some, excuse me, urban planning theory to library science. Uh, pardon me in November 2022 I co-wrote an article for the American Library Association's uh, Journal of um of Intellectual Freedom and Privacy and uh on on library neutrality and I apply city planning theory uh to the topic of library neutrality.
0: Oh, very interesting. That's a that's a very interesting approach to that topic. So as we're thinking about your 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 current work, uh the Shakespeare Authorship Question and Philosophy. Now you do yeah. a really good good job in your introduction and you offer some in some great insight into your evolution and interest in this topic. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what sparked your interest in this topic to pursue this book. Right. <clears throat> well, the uh like I said, I did a theater degree and we never talked
1: about that, there was an authorship question, uh, any doubt about it. And it wasn't until I was working in public libraries and realized, hey, you know, I never read a biography of Shakespeare while I was in theater school. And the branch where I was working at happened to have a 900 page book called The Mysterious William Shakespeare, The Myth and the Reality by Charlton Ogburn Jr. And I took it home thinking it was going to be a standard biography of the man from Stratford. But actually, it's all about how it's a complete historical myth. There's no corroborating historical evidence that William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon was a writer of any kind, much less the greatest writer in the English language. Uh, and and that the real author probably was Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. And my mind was really blown by this. And, and so I, I was very engaged. Um, and as I say in the introduction, at the time, uh, I was working... I was on the uh, Greater Edmonton Library Association's program committee, and we were looking for events and at the time, uh, Charles Beauclerc, the Earl of Burford, who's um, uh, an indirect descendant of Edward de Vere, the likely actual William Shakespeare, was touring North America at the time, doing talks at high schools and other institutions about the authorship question. And so I got our library association to partner with the university and the school system uh, to fund uh, the Earl's visit to, to Edmonton. And I escorted him around and <clears throat> heard his talk a number of times. But as I say in the introduction, this, the, it starts off with um, this student, this young student came up to us after Charles had spoken at her high school. And he just totally destroyed the myth of the man from Stratford. And, and this student came up to us and she said, why would anybody believe it? And she just had this, this wide-eyed look like she just couldn't believe how anybody could believe this myth that, that is so established and entrenched in all of our institutions, in our society, in our culture. And, and so that, that question has been niggling at me for 30 years about why is it believed, and and that's really the the genesis of the book. But uh, as I as I set out in the um, the foreword, uh, it didn't start off as a book. This this the content of this book evolved over about a decade, and it comprises a number like four significant articles, peer reviewed articles, and and peer reviewed a peer reviewed chapter, plus book review essays, and uh, I initially proposed to Cambridge scholars that I would like to create an anthology of all of my writing on the subject because there's many others. Uh, Some of the readers might remember I wrote an article for American libraries back in 2015 about the Folger Shakespeare Library's 2016 tour of the first folio to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the first folio. And I brought up the authorship question as part of this article and the website was just inundated with comments. Uh, They said that they'd never received so many comments on anything they'd ever published on the website. Um, So lots of different writing like that, but what happened over the course of my research leave from January to June of 2023 uh, was the, I had been reading uh, so much literature on epistemology, which is the study of knowledge and how we come to know what we think we know. Uh, and and one of the the pieces that I came across was um, a work by a German-American philosopher named uh, Eric Vogelin. And I should actually preface this by saying that um, I have master's degrees in library science and city planning, but I am not a, a degreed philosopher. So this is all uh, literature that I uh, I have been reading uh, on my own. I mean, obviously library science and, and planning did some, there's some philosophizing involved in that. And I'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> but uh, a couple of articles by by Eric Vogelin from the early 1970s totally changed how I was thinking about this project. Uh, he talks about um, how idealism and, you know, hyper-individualism and utopianism can lead people uh, into creating what, what he called second realities, that if you are idealizing how you think the world ought to be as opposed to the way the world actually is, that it then results in a second reality. And what he said about second realities is that they uh, the operations that an idealist would want to carry out in a second reality has to look as if it's an operation in first reality. But what's important is that it it, it is, a, is seeking to escape control and judgment by the criteria of first reality. And by first reality, what he's talking about is our intersubjectively experienced reality, uh, where we have some agreed upon criteria to, to determine what is real. Um, and, that, you know, these days we hear lots of, discourse about my truth and your truth and postmodernism and relativism, and there's no real truth and no, rea- no reality. <clears throat> but what I realized is that the, the, the biograph fiction, as, as it's called in, um, in Shakespearean biography, really amounts to a second reality that you know tries to look as if it's first reality, and in fact, you know Shakespeare scholarship is held up as sort of the epitome of scholarship. It's the pinnacle of the the ivory tower. But but the the standard Stratfordian Shakespearean biography is really seeking to escape control and judgment by the criteria of first reality. And to give it an example of this, I've got a passage here from Stephen Greenblatt's. Uh, best-selling will-in-the-world um, biography. And, and he wrote um, that uh, in the introduction that to understand how Shakespeare used his imagination to transform his life into his art, it is important to use our own imagination. And he starts off the book with, let us imagine. And so I, I just kind of opened up the book randomly and, and, and found this passage. Even without a formal theatrical apprenticeship, Will must have acquired much of what he needed during his Stratford adolescence. Local talent abounded. Filled with linguistic exuberance and rich fantasy, Will could have studied the lute with one of his accomplished neighbors, dancing with another, swordsmanship with still another. Observing his reflection in glass or his shadow on a wall, he could have recited grand-sounding speeches and practiced courtly gestures. And with his mother's link to the Ardens of Park Hall and his father's faded but still notable distinction, he could have arrived at the sense that he could confidently carry off the role of a gentleman and fulfill his parents' dreams. Uh, you know, this is basically fan fiction about Shakespeare. This is not biography. And if you look at any standard Stratfordian biography of Shakespeare that fill our libraries, right? And this is one of the reasons why I, I, this issue, I think is so important for librarians uh, is, is, you know, I'll come back to that. (laughs) But that these biographies are filled with these conditional phrases, could have, must have. It is, you know, doubtless that, but there is no evidence from the man from Stratford's lifetime, which is 1564 to 1616, that says he was a writer. He never claimed to be a writer. His family, his descendants never claimed he was a writer. His neighbors never claimed he was a writer. Uh, We have nothing in his hand. His reputation as an author and the greatest author in the English language, if not the world, was established entirely posthumously. Now, what what we see in the, in the, the mainstream academy and publishing and biography is that that Shakespeare's identity is seen to be without doubt. And in 2013, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust uh, released a book called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt, Evidence, Argument, Controversy, edited by Sir Stanley Wells and Paul Edmondson. Uh, And they were seeking to debunk any doubt or skepticism or alternative authorial theories. But in fact, they did nothing of the kind. The book doesn't really address the problem at all. And you know, I can't really get into all of the reasons why uh, there's so much doubt and has been for the last better part of 200 years. There's no evidence that Shakespeare of Stratford went to school. We know he never left England. Yet, you know, so many of the Shakespeare plays, 10 of them are set in Italy and have incredibly detailed, um, you know, descriptions of, of the geography of the courtly life In uh, uh, in in Italian cities, Um, where where could Shakespeare have learned all this? There's extensive passages in Henry V in you know brilliant French, written in French. How did he acquire uh, to learn how to speak and write in French? Uh, And the the standard answer is well he met travelers, he met Italians. Uh, The plays and the poems are littered with legal allusions you know metaphors in legal terminology well he must have worked as a law clerk somewhere or maybe he met lawyers somehow he he acquired this knowledge but it's because and this is the meta-narrative it's that he was a natural genius he used his pure imagination to imagine the details in the plays and the poems but you know, all things being equal, it's it's just ridiculous. We we know that creativity doesn't work like that. People can be born with genius, but if it isn't nurtured, then if they don't have the sufficient education, if they don't get the training, they're never going to be able to bring that talent to fulfillment, and to be a writer or an artist or a, or a musician. Um, you know, so the idea that will Shakespeare in this provincial town. Uh, with, you know, no books to speak of anywhere. He certainly doesn't mention any books in his will. Uh, How could he have done it? It, There's just no explanatory potential in the standard Stratfordian narrative to explain how not only could he have written so brilliantly, but to have adopted such an aristocratic perspective. His, his, His works are very much from the view of uh, of aristocracy, and concerned with the divine right to rule. And what happens when that is disrupted? You know, as we see um, in, in Hamlet, when Claudius uh, murders the, the rightful king and usurps the throne, when Macbeth uh, murders the king and usurps the throne, you know, that, that all sorts of uh, disruption happens. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why I think librarians... Ought to care about this issue, and not only because our libraries are filled with, you know, the, you know, thousands upon thousands of books based on this this evidence-free mythology. That if it were corrected, if if institutions like the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, the Folger Shakespeare Library, uh, if they were to acknowledge, okay, um, we concede that the author was probably Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. And all of those books that would become obsolete, the the new encyclopedias that would, articles that would have to be written. I mean, it's just endless. Um, Last year, I also co-wrote an article for Cataloging and Classification Quarterly with Bill Boyle and Catherine Haddengase on the um, cataloging implications that, uh, the subject headings that are currently assigned to books related to the authorship question, uh, the subject headings are inadequate. The classification uh, is is inadequate and doesn't really describe what this literature is about. So I'd encourage uh, uh, listeners to, to seek that out as well. Um, and uh, the, uh, um, okay, <laughs> I'm just blanking
0: on the title. Hold on. Hopefully you can edit this out. <laughs> but as you're looking up that title, you know, as I'm, I'm listening to you talk about this issue, you know, how did this debate around who Shakespeare is and, and more importantly, why is there such a deficiency in the biography of this man? And and I think you do a really good job of touching on this in, in your work, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and really you know why do you see the academy, Shakespeare scholars, you know disqualifying or dismissing the the question of authorship?
1: Well, certainly the uh, <clears throat> so many careers are invested in the the traditional mythology. You know that that scholars have built their entire academic careers, all of their publishing. Uh, it, it would really be extraordinary to to be in the position of of having to to forsake that, And uh, like so many reputations are built on it. But um, we see the first book length biography of Shakespeare uh, in the 1840s, so like 230 years after the death of William Shakespeare of Stratford. Uh, and these, these early biographies were just wholly speculative. And the speculation was then built upon and uh, then you know as people began searching the archives and gathering records and so we have 70 records about william Shakespeare. you know we know that he was a successful businessman and property owner he sued people a lot uh he he hoarded grain in a time of famine like we have all the more we know about this person the less it seems possible that he could have been the greatest writer in the english language because none of the records from his lifetime have anything to do with writing. He was never paid to write anything. How he got his wealth, uh, we don't know exactly. How he was able to buy New Place in 1597, you know, one of the most expensive properties in Stratford-upon-Avon. That he was an investor in the theaters, uh, there's there's evidence for that. Uh, So, what's what's happened is that biographers have tried to stitch together uh the the documents about william Shakespeare with the the incredibly rich literature and like psychologizing from the plays and the sonnets you know the what he must have thought and as we read from from that passage from will in the world but uh what what I also realized, uh, and I get into this in chapter two, where I look at a lot of Hegelian philosophy, is that <clears throat> what, what I, I articulate here is what I'm calling the Stratfordian dialectic. We're probably familiar with the idea of dialectics as we have a thesis, then we have um, a, an antithesis, it's opposite, and then we get a synthesis of a bit of the two. And that's usually, you know, dialectical reasoning uh, involves that. But uh, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel uh, thought of the dialectic differently. And what he articulates in the phenomenology of spirit is that you have an abstract, you have an ideal, some kind of concept. And then you put it in collision with its opposite. And he said it, and there's a process that he called Aufheben which in English translates to sublation. And to sublate means to uplift, but also to abolish and to preserve. And what you get then is a new, something entirely new that emerges from that. So, so the examples he gave in his book were being and its opposite, nothing. And through the process of Aufheben, being and nothing become becoming. Uh, abolishing the meaning of being and the meaning of nothing, but, you know, uplifting them. And so I applied this to the authorship question and this idea of second realities. And so if you've got this historical individual, William Shakespeare, but let's, sorry, let's start off with William Shakespeare, the author of the plays, who who on the title pages, Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, sometimes hyphenated, shake-spear, which It was a convention at the time in Elizabethan literature probably indicating a pseudonym. You see a number of pseudonyms at the time with with hyphens there. Uh, So the, the idea of shaking a spear. So William Shakespeare, whomever that was, the literature, the plays and poems, and then you have William Shakespeare. So the abstract Shakespeare, it's opposite, Shakespeare, the historic individual and businessman. Through the process of Aufhaven, both of these are then abolished and transformed and uplifted to become William Shakespeare, the bard of Stratford upon Avon. And because the meanings of both Shakespeare and Shakespeare have been abolished and no longer signify what they originally did, and we're working within this Stratfordian second reality. It's very difficult to have a debate between Oxfordians, as those of us who believe the Earl of Oxford was Shakespeare, or post-Stratfordians who aren't committed to any particular candidate, but who don't believe that Shakespeare was the author. It's very difficult for us to have a debate with Stratfordians because they're they're referring to Shakespeare. Uh, We're trying to say there's an individual named Shakespeare whether or not Shakespeare was Shakespeare is what the what the debate is about. And you know, it it just it's very difficult to convey this. It's very difficult for mainstream news outlets or publications to convey what the nature of this debate is actually about. And so, you know, Stratfordians will say, well, did Shakespeare write the plays and poems, or did Francis Bacon write them, or did Edward De Vere write them? And that assumes that there is undisputably an author named William Shakespeare. There wasn't, uh, <laughs> if you look at, at the actual evidence. And so, um, and, and sorry, this is, this is something that we touch on. I, I mentioned our article in Cataloging and Classification Quarterly. Uh, and it was called Tongue Tied by Authorities, Library of Congress Vocabularies and the Shakespeare Authorship Question. This was Cataloging and Classification Quarterly, uh, was published in in November of 2022, um, page one to 39. And one of the theories that we look at there is is realism, um, philosophical realism in cataloging. And that if you adopt a realist position in cataloging, you actually have to base your subject headings on documentary warrant. And there is no documentary warrant to assign authorship to William Shakespeare. <laughs> and so, strictly speaking, uh, so we propose that that Shakespeare, you know, that could be, you know, a, a pseudonym. So if we have Shakespeare William, but without any dates attached, right? Because currently it's Shakespeare William, fifteen sixty four to sixteen sixteen, but there's no documentary warrant for that. There's a, a William Shakespeare who had those dates, right? So anyway, I encourage readers to or listeners to read that because uh, uh, we were very pleased to 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 have the authorship question and an article about it accepted in a premier library science journal like Cataloging and Classification Quarterly. Uh, we Oxfordians are, are really pleased about this uh, achievement. So, but yes, yeah, so I think that's why why it has been so difficult to to get to break through to the mainstream why biographies continue to be churned out year after year after year climbing the bestseller list because they are operating in the second reality and it's not
0: being recognized as such and, and so how do we change that reality how do we have that conversation and, and your work goes a long way to engage in that conversation but how do we have this conversation really start um changing it and, and really debating it. Because what you're saying is we, the debate the is not even there. So how do we move to, to having that debate?
1: Well, it, what I actually conclude is that there really isn't any point having traditional authorship debates until we can clear up these epistemological problems. And so the, the book is divided into three parts, uh, as the subtitle says, knowledge, rhetoric, identity. Uh, so the first five chapters deal with knowledge, Uh, Chapter two is, you know, gets, sorry, chapter one is a meta-understanding. We need a meta-understanding, and that is an understanding of our understanding of the authorship question, and what are all of the reasons why it is so difficult to to be able to debate this, uh, including a lack of shared terminology and just widespread misunderstanding uh, about this. Um, chapter two, I get into the philosophy about, about the philosophy of genius, the philosophy of imagination on the part of, uh, biographers. Um, and I'd like to parenthetically get back to library science theory and city planning theory here. And one of the, the things that I brought to this project that I think most, you know, English literature, uh, professors or, or even philosophers wouldn't have is that both librarianship and planning are very much concerned with uh, theoretical reflexivity. That it's not just that we're theorizing about our object of our work, i.e. you know, information for librarians and, and urban settlements for planners, but we're also theorizing about our own relationship with those objects of our work. And so really getting into what is our role as a presumed expert, you know what? What is the state of our knowledge? Um, how do we engage with citizens about this? Um, what are our ethical commitments to society? And I think in in my in chapter two here, I'm kind of doing that work for the Shakespeare biographers, and doing that reflexive theorizing about their unfettered imagination in creating this this you know fictional. Shakespeare and what impact that has had on society, Uh, and and then getting into the Stratfordian dialectic. Chapter three is on the ethics of belief, and this was a paper that I published in 2021. Uh, So this is one of the previously existing works, Um, and the ethics of belief are all about uh, that we need to have sufficient evidence for our beliefs, you know, outside of religion, like I wouldn't apply this to religious belief, right? But if it's something to do with something that can be empirically demonstrated, then we need to have sufficient evidence for that belief, especially if we are then going to assert that belief and try to convince others of it. And then we have an impact on other people uh, and society at large. So with, with Eric Vogelin saying that second realities are trying to escape the criteria of first reality, that's my first criteria. The ethics of belief, and what I what I pull out of the the literature on belief ethics is there's twelve conditions uh, that are described for ethical belief, and and the Stratfordian literature really I only met like one and a third of those twelve conditions, which I found was really extraordinary. You know, uh, the second criteria in in chapter four is theories of knowledge. Uh, so how do we know what we we think t- we know and how do we justify those beliefs and how are our justifications structured uh, some of our list listeners may have heard of you know foundationalism like what is a foundational belief um and and what i determined there is that stratfordian belief doesn't meet any of the conventions for theories of knowledge either uh so for example there's a, a theory of knowledge called um a uh, causal, a causal theory of knowledge, that your, your belief has to be appropriately connected to an event uh, in question. So the, the example from the literature is imagine that there's a volcanic eruption and lava and rocks are, are strewn all over the place. But someone comes along years later and they clean up all of the lava and all of the rocks. Then, you know, a generation later, someone else comes along and throws around a whole bunch of volcanic rocks. I mean, this is ridiculous, obviously, it's a thought experiment, but they, th- they strew about, about the ground a whole bunch of other volcanic rocks. Now you come along 100 years later and you see all these volcanic rocks, there's a volcano, and you infer, oh, there must have been an eruption in you know, a previous century. And you would be right to infer that, but you would have no appropriately, causally connected knowledge of that actual event. And I think this really maps on well to Shakespeare biography because we don't see the first biography until 230 years after William Shakespeare dies. There's no living connection. There's, you know, there's no living witnesses. There's no documentary evidence from his lifetime. It's all supposition. Uh, so there's no the, the causal, there's no causal uh, justification uh, for, for that uh, assertion. And then in chapter five, I get into theories of uh, truth, and there's a correspondence theory of truth. You know, so to what extent does your belief correspond to facts in, that obtain in the world that you, that you can demonstrate? Uh, the coherence theory of truth, does, do all of the elements of your belief, do they cohere together, and as such kind of indicate that your belief is true? You know all of the different elements. Do they hold together? And what I argue is that the the elements of Stratfordian belief in Shakespeare is Shakespeare. It's completely incoherent. It doesn't hold together at all. Uh, you know the, the the defenses of the the belief are um, they can only make make excuses. You know, well, oh, well, perhaps you know his will had a an inventory of books that he owned, and that that was lost. How did he acquire his knowledge? Well, there were the lost years where he must have worked as a law clerk, or he must have been a soldier, um, and 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 then imagination, re- referring to imagination and genius, are completely unfalsifiable. Uh, so you can't disprove it because you know it's it's completely um, uh, unfalsifiable. So the the belief doesn't cohere together either, and there's no facts that can correspond. So the correspondence theory doesn't hold either. And then the third theory is the pragmatic theory of truth, which is regardless of what metaphysical truth is out there about what it is you believe, does your belief have resilience? Can it respond to objections? Does it have real world cash value? Uh, and what I demonstrate is that belief in Oxford as Shakespeare is far more resilient, answers far more questions, has far more explanatory potential than the myth of Shakespeare as Shakespeare. And so I was saying that that Oxfordians really need to say, you know, the pragmatic theory of truth is, is really a, the grounds that we can point to uh, because our belief has cash value. So part one that establishes that there by any of these disinterested criteria. So again, I'm not offering any evidence for or against Shakespeare or Oxford. I leave that to other authors. There's many brilliant books that do this, but by these disinterested criteria, the belief in Shakespeare as Shakespeare simply can't be justified. So part two is rhetoric. Well, how then is this belief defended? And so in chapter five, I talk about the rhetoric of natural genius as being kind of a colonial imperial relic of the British empire. When when we see all this rhetoric about the natural genius of the West and the natural genius of of England and and its empire, of which the natural genius of of Shakespeare, the author is the exemplar. Um, And so we see Britain using Shakespeare in colonial education systems, India, has, you know, a huge uh, Shakespeare, uh, body of Shakespeare literature and performance in India because of Britain's colonial education system. You know, India really embraced Shakespeare. Um, so we've got this rhetoric of natural genius that's, that's you know, kind of unrecognized underneath, you know, imperial rhetoric and sort of self-flattery uh, about, about the West uh, and that rhetoric. Um, And then in chapter seven, I look at the pejorative rhetoric. Uh, And this is where I bring in the Association of College and Research Libraries
0: framework for information literacy for higher education. And I'm glad Uh, you're bringing that in. That's something that listeners are definitely going to be interested in seeing that connection. mm -hmm.
1: And this, again, was previously published in the book Teaching and Learning Practices for Academic Freedom, uh, edited by Patrick Blessinger and Anachi Sengupta um, from Emerald Publishing. Uh, so that, and I was really, again, this was a mainstream publication and I got this article on, on, uh, the authorship question published in that book. Uh, so when I encountered the ACRL, art ACRL framework, I was really struck by how I could, you know, map it, excuse me, to the rhetoric in this case, um, and as far as I can tell, I don't think anyone has used the ACRL framework as an analytical tool to analyze rhetoric. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a, a great description of, the, of scholarly disposition of what constitutes sound scholarship. And so what I do in chapter seven is look at each one of the elements accord- and then um, apply Stratfordian rhetoric and scholarly behavior uh, and, and their statements to demonstrate that they're not meeting the the, uh, requirements. This, again, a disinterested framework for sound scholarship uh, in the ACRL framework. Uh, The following chapter looks at um, mainstream uh, mass media framing uh, in terms of Chomsky and Herman's propaganda model of news and the reception to the 2011 film Anonymous, which posited uh, a very, you know, very theatrical interpretation of how uh, Edward De Vere, Earl of Oxford, could have been Shakespeare, and how so much of the media response to it was so hostile. And we saw this again in 2019 with Elizabeth Winkler and her article uh, "Was Shakespeare a Woman?" in the uh, issue of Atlantic magazine. And she was lambasted uh, in other media outlets as well by Stratfordians. So there's, you know, this very um, invidious. Uh, rhetoric, um, you know, calling doubters, uh, conspiracy theorists, comparing us to Holocaust deniers, like really nasty stuff. Um, and then the, the final chapter of the rhetoric section looks at logical fallacies. And I, there's a book review essay that I published uh, where I point out all of the logical fallacies that, that were, were used uh, in this book review, you know, including the, the no true Scotsman fallacy, which is, you know, well, no, no real scholar believes that anyone other than William Shakespeare of Stratford von Avon uh, was the author. So establishing then in part two, this is how that second reality is maintained and defended. Part three then is, well, how do we
0: reestablish a Shakespearean first reality? and And I like that approach. And so how how do we rethink our relationship between identity and our beliefs, And how can we address this question of authorship then?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, first, i I demonstrate in chapter eleven, um, this was another previously published work um, where the the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, uh, which is an advocacy organization for the Earl of Oxford. Starting in 2015, they started running or soliciting and running uh, personal essays by Oxfordians, how I became an Oxfordian. I submitted one of these and I gave an abbreviated account of that, you know, of the students saying, why would anybody believe it Um, event? Um, And so in 2017, by the time I was um, thinking about this project, there were about 50 of these essays. And so I analyzed them. Uh, Again, this was uh, really a unique um, uh, perspective I was able to bring to the project is that my mother, Nancy Dudley, published her dissertation in 1987 on the phenomenology or the experience of paradigm shifts. So what is it like to actually change your entire worldview from one thing to another? And I I reread her dissertation and I thought, well, this is I can map this on totally to the Oxfordian experience, or at least I can see how it maps on. Uh, and, and so what I did then is that I, I took her framework, I added onto it, I had to add some, some other elements related to emotion um, and, and intention, uh, again, from, from other literature, but found that the, that phenomenology of the paradigm shift was really clear and from a pragmatic perspective, like the cash value of belief in Oxford, that you read these essays that I excerpt in the chapter and the the respondents who were saying, the plays didn't make any sense. I read the biographies and they left me completely cold. I was really dissatisfied. And then they encounter Oxford, usually through a book like the one I encountered, The Mysterious William Shakespeare, The Myth and the Reality, and that this lightning flash you know the light bulb goes off and suddenly things start to fall into place they reread the plays they make sense especially if you read the sonnets suddenly you see an autobiographical story being told here of of the poet and his relationship with the fair youth and and so that pragmatic cash value really uh, is is apparent um so then in chapter 11, I bring all this together, uh, all of the theories that I discuss in the book and really lay out that we're not just dealing with a different authorial theory between Shakespeare and Oxford, but it is completely different worldviews about just everything, about how we know, about uh, the role of the historian, about um, uh, the the nature of reality even, you know, that that if there's such a thing as natural genius, or is that, is that coming from God? Like, are we making a theological statement here, uh, a metaphysical statement of, of faith um, that Oxfordians don't need to do? You know, we can, we can see where Oxford got his education, you know, who his tutor was, uh, that he was, that he was raised as a ward of court with one of the best libraries in the kingdom that we, we, we can definitely see. We, we know he traveled to Italy for two years, visiting many of the cities that are mentioned in the Shakespeare plays. So we have that explanatory potential. But as you asked, like how do we then address this issue of identity and belief? And one of the big stumbling blocks that I talk about is that Stratfordians are holding on to, are holding this belief and their identity and holding those together so tightly that it is a threat to their identity to let that go, to allow it to be questioned. Uh, and I bring in a, a recent book by Julia Galef called The Scout Mindset. Uh, and it's very much about our identities as believers. And she says that, that we have, there's two kinds of believers that she talks about. One is the, the soldier mindset where you're defending your beliefs and you're really concerned with practical reason here about how practical reasoning how do i defend my belief how do i prove it true as opposed to a scout who is trying to map out the knowledge landscape and wants to get the right answer whatever it is and they're not they're not investing their own you know identity in in determining one answer or another and so this is what I think is really needed in the field of Shakespeare studies is that we all need to hold our identities a little less tightly. Um, You know, I'm, as much as I believe in in Oxford as Shakespeare, I'm willing to be proven wrong. If there's, you know, because again, there's only circumstantial evidence that Edward de Vere was Shakespeare. There's no smoking gun. There's no, you know, document where, where somebody says, oh, I... Just saw the most delightful performance of of Hamlet by my my Lord Oxford. You know nobody has discovered something like that. So if if something you know very definitive is discovered indicating that someone else or other groups of people wrote the plays, then I would grudgingly you know relinquish relinquish my belief. Uh, but so that that really is an important thing is that we we need to be able to have a reasoned debate, we need to have it on commensurate grounds, that we're dealing with disinterested criteria of belief, of knowledge, of justification, of truth, not using invidious ad hominem rhetoric of condemning people that disagree with us, but instead accepting other knowers, other Shakespeare lovers as fellow Shakespeareans and saying, well, how can we better understand this body of literature that we love so much, you know who, whomever wrote it, uh, <laughs> let's make that journey together. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that, that, that was the argument. I was able to kind of retroactively construct from ten years worth of articles and then a six month research leave where I, you know combined a whole bunch of new content and then edited,
0: you know, and reordered what I'd previously written. Well, it's a fascinating work, and Michael, I know that we're running out of time. And So I was just wondering, what projects are you currently working on, and are you going to continue to explore this issue, or are you going to—is your research going to take you in a new direction?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, one of the uh,
1: projects I'm involved with, I'm I'm involved with Heterodox Academy Libraries, and I'm a contributor to the Heterodoxy in the Stacks substack, uh, where we're very much concerned with open inquiry intellectual freedom academic freedom Uh, you know this is very much aligned with my intention with his book is i'm trying to promote open inquiry and academic freedom here Uh, and and the you know what what has happened with shakespeare studies for for decades is really you know an early form of what we now call cancel culture is that skeptics uh have been canceled and and not uh, allowed into conferences and not allowed into into um, the scholarly conversation. So yeah, you can find my work at Heterodoxy in the Stacks. I do have a website for the book called you know saqnphilosophy.com where I've, I've I'm I'm blogging. I'm posting all of my interviews. Uh, there are some other video interviews I've done. Um, the Don't Quill the Messenger podcast uh, did my book launch, and that that's linked to my website. Uh, but what I'd like to do, actually, I'm thinking of doing a podcast about my book, Excellent. like like maybe spending a year putting out one episode a month where I go into the chapter and really delve into the theories uh, in more detail, uh, maybe reading through some of the papers like William Kingdon's Clifford, William Kingdon Clifford's original speech and paper on uh, the ethics of belief. I think... Like if, if people listen to that original paper, you can just see how, um, how divergent uh, standard Shakespearean biography is from what he said would be ethical belief. So yeah, I'd, I'd really like to, to do that kind of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm just also enjoying getting back to work after my research leave and working with all
0: of the, the different student groups I'm working with. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you for sharing some of those projects that you're currently working on with the Heterodox Academy Library Group, and and uh, hopefully you, you'll you'll work on that podcast and, and get that launched. Um, I really want to thank you for your time today. This was a really interesting and enjoyable conversation. I'm Michael LaMagna, and thank you for listening to the New Books and Library Science podcast channel on the New Books Network.